I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Sick Boy, a podcast where we talk about what it's like to be sick. This week's guest is Ian. He has heterotaxy syndrome. Let's talk about it. Uh, well, this should be fun. We are sitting down, Taylor and I, sans Brian. Brian's Brian really likes vacation these days. Bri's li- Brian likes summer vacation. He really, really does like summer vacation. A little, yeah. little too much. We might have to little chat with him when he gets back. I don't take vacation. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, we're, yeah. we're, we're hanging out with our uh, new buddy, Ian Hawkins, all the way from London. Um, and that's not London, Ontario, my friend. That is, <laughs> that's the real deal. Uh, it's the real deal, London. Across the pond. Uh, and Ian is, a, uh, is an international events host, an author, a business journalist. Um, his works appeared on CBS, uh, BBC World, Reuters. That's how Jeremy likes to say Reuters. And, uh, <laughs> and we're, we're, uh, we're happy to have you here today, Ian. Um, I'm looking forward to picking your brain and talking to you about your experience with, um, with heart disease. But, uh, but I, I feel like this conversation is going to go all over the map. So, Ian, I, I will, you will do a far better job than I ever would of introducing yourself to our listeners. Give us a bit of insight into who Ian Hawkins is. Buddy, you've made me sound so serious. It sounds like I'm going to sit here and be very newsy <laughs> and very... Oh, I, actually, have you heard my accent? Has I've suddenly become terribly <laughs> BBC. Yeah. Oh my God. This is it. <laughs> you've pressed the record button. You know, I once went for a job with the BBC where I they were they wanted a voiceover, and they wanted a continuity announcer. And so I said, "Of course, okay, I can do this." BBC Voice. You're listening to BBC Radio Four, and they said, "But we don't want RP. We want regions." We don't right, want people talking right. like, like they used to in the 1950s. Right. And I said, "Well, I'm from Essex. I could be as regional as you like. How regional would you want me to be?" And they went. <laughs> Not that regional. Not too, that too regional. regional. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> too regional. Can you look? I I I love that you just you just mentioned RP, which I feel like ninety nine percent of Canadians have no fucking clue what RP is. Can you explain to our listeners and to Taylor what RP <laughs> means? <laughs> RP is short for received pronunciation. And if you look back into like the nineteen fifties and sixties in all those James Bond books where they say he is a, he's a Swiss national, but he has no accent. Mm. He does have an accent. It's just RP, mm-hmm. but in the in the crazy world of James Bond, speak, speaking like you went to an English public school, like two percent of the population <laughs> means you have no accent, and they <laughs> right, can't figure right. it out. That's right. Yeah, RP was like it was ta- it was taught in it was taught in schools, right? It was like it was it was used as a, but like, but it was taught in Not, schools, like people who spoke RP were were sort of back in the day were like, you know, yeah, upper yeah. middle class. So. Kind so of, because class is such an important thing to people it was seen as if you're if you're working class like me you know uh, being able to speak nicely was regarded as being a gateway into a better job yeah. if you look at older actors less so now but older actors that that do programs that are set out in the regions 
And we know them from their characters where they all speak with these broad Yorkshire accents. Mm. But then they go on an interview and they say, oh, yes, when I play this Yorkshireman, I do like to (laughs) (laughs) put myself in his. Ian McKellen. Ian Ian McKellen speaks like this. Yeah. But of course, Ian McKellen is from Leeds, which is this, or Leeds is more like that, you know. Yeah, right. And you can hear him put it on. Yeah. Isn't it so funny how, how, when you, (laughs) when you, step into i mean like this isn't a performance we're not performing here on this mm. podcast but yet when the oh you should when, hear me when the mics are off when the recording starts there is a change like yeah. it's almost like a genetic change happens when the record button happens i mean i'm sure you you probably notice it just in the way that jer we you know we were talking before we hit record and then we hit we hit record and jer does his little introduction for you and it's like a, it's a kind of a sea change you know what it's like cadence and you know what it's like it's like when you go on a date a first date and you're just nailing it and you're just the you are presenting (laughs) the version of you that you want yeah yeah you're the best version of you you're putting it out there and that's me on every fucking episode of this podcast (laughs) one glove on (laughs) holding the other gloves (laughs) that's it you know it's it's funny so i went to i studied acting and um and here in Canada, at like at a at a you know, at most of the reputable acting schools, RP is you learn RP. It's it's mm. a it's a very like it's it's ingrained in the process of you have to learn RP. And I just when whenever I hear someone who refers to RP, it just it's I'm always like ah yeah yeah tell well, the, tell the world. Do you want me to give you immediately? For you and your your dear listener, a little bit of insight as a, as an international events host. Lots of people find it very difficult to tell the difference between uh, a Canadian accent and a USA accent. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. And so, if I am presenting something from a stage and I hear a North American accent, my approach is always to say, "Is that a Canadian accent?" Because if it is, they're really impressed, and if mm. they're just American, they don't care. Yeah. So that. <laughs> <laughs> that's my approach same yeah. thing works for new zealanders and australians always go for the new zealand yeah there you go yeah right but yeah but i feel like if you say are you a new zealander to an australian they'll go what the fuck are you saying like they they, they would take offense to it yeah i, I I'm, I'm i've got some like can, can canada Maybe. u.s sort of like vibes with australia and new zealand yeah but since we're down this since we're we've all of a sudden found ourselves down this accent trip track <laughs> i love that this is where the podcast <laughs> this is where, is gone. This is where we started <laughs> with accents um what's the thing with with acting in the not just acting but like broadcast radio and, and television in the u.s where you put on this like i'm from nowhere yeah i mean that's that's like that's like north our, america's version of rp, of RP it's, right. it's a it's a it's a what's non it's, it's a it, um I, there's a specific way of saying it but there, it's like a it's a non-distinct north american accent it's just like so you're that, definitely not from like Minnesota. You're definitely not from yeah. Alberta. You're definitely not from Ontario. You're just from some, you're just from like yeah. It was like so that somebody America, somebody probably. from you know somebody yeah. from Idaho could go take yes. a, a weather network job in Boston and not right. and not be like where the fuck is okay. this yeah, guy yeah, from? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, Brooklyn. Let me yeah. sit on the veranda <laughs> and have a mint julep. <laughs> yeah. um ian so okay hold on ian, hold on hold on ian introduce yourself i, I mean we, we, we the, the, this whole thing ended up here because because you said the word because you said the two letters rp <laughs> that's right that's right give us a little intro ian oh, well okay so i'm a i'm a business journalist so i've, I've made films for world about interesting people for viewers interested people 
all over the world. So uh, you said it before, CBS Reuters, did you Reuters. say? Reuters. Yeah, Reuters. Yeah. Or, or in RP, Reuters. Uh, and BBC <laughs> World. I've got a weird background because I started off as a comedian. I started off writing for BBC Comedy straight out of university. And uh, I got hoodwinked into being a stand-up. So I, bec- I was a stand-up mm. for a bit and reasonably okay made a few few quid but it took up all my all my evenings and all my all my weekends and i realized that what i wanted was to be able to do creative work so i became a business journalist during a regular working week and off the back of that i i started hosting webinars and then live events and uh, and it just means that it it involves all the same skills as comedy mm. because people often come away from things going that was a uh, a conference about cybersecurity, and yet we seem to laugh a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as well as having all the all the skills that I learned on comedy, I, I get I get nicer transport, better pay, and better hours. <laughs> yeah, right, uh, so, yeah. so I'm a failed comedian, but I feel like I failed in absolutely the best way. You know, that's interesting. I, I never thought about uh, calling myself a failed actor. But failing in all the right ways. I think that's. Uh, yeah. I'm going to steal that from you. And um, but you, when you, yeah, people fail upwards all the time, and it's great right. because you totally. go yeah. that I, I scratch that itch. I mean, the life. I, I know a, a comedian who is, I would say, at the top of their game, and they have a bit of a tricky life because they want to have a family, they want mm. to feel a bit more settled down, but they can't because they're on a world tour. And you and me sit out and go, God, the glamour of a world tour. And they're like, do you know what? I'd really like a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But I'm not, you know, yeah. I can't do it. I think failing, you know, quote unquote failing is oftentimes, oftentimes, you know, pushing you to fall ass backwards into the success of another Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I totally. I I mean, that's, that's, that's how to, I mean, that's, that's the like, that's the ideal way to handle failure. Is to is to use it to propel you into a direction that is, yeah, like noticing, like, well, what is what is all this shit that I put myself through that yeah. ultimately didn't work out? Prepare me for, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Do you uh, do you want me? I could I could tell you a really good story about failure that not only is really sort of on point, but also will get us straight back on track with the subject of this show. Please mm, do, yeah. Please. Okay, uh, I am alive because of failure. So back in the 1960s, they were doing heart transplants, and the guy that sort of pioneered it in the UK, a guy called Donald Ross, said basically the heart is a pump, and you're just it's plumbing. You take it out of a dead patient and you put it into a patient who's still alive but has a bad heart, and stitch it in, and it pumps away, and it works fine. And it, he says it's not easy, but it's we know how to do it now. Mm-hmm. The problem is we don't have the drugs that keep people alive for long enough because it the, the body rejects the new heart, so the patient dies in a couple of months. So that, in in many respects, is an absolutely massive failure. So they, they couldn't do these heart transplants anymore. So uh, Donald Ross and his chief physician, a uh, lady called Jane Somerville, said, well, what should we do when we can't fix hearts like this? And they decided they were going to start doing other cases. And Jane said, well, why don't we do pediatric cardiology? Because children who are born with heart disease, something like 90% of them are going to die before they reach adulthood. So why don't we start making inroads into that 90% of children and see what we can do? And so through the 70s, they started developing and perfecting these surgical techniques. Hmm. Uh, The pharmacy industry brought on all of these drugs that made 
transplant patients survive for longer. But by that time, there were all these new pro uh, processes and procedures that I benefited directly from because Donald Ross then became my surgeon. And when mm. I had a VSD repair and a, a, one of my valves went wrong and he fixed that, I had open heart surgery that was directly a result of that failure being turned into something much oh. more useful. So mm -hmm. interesting. So so in so saying that the the inability to the inability to make a heart transplant stick and mm. and mainly because mainly because of the rejection aspect of mm. and and the and the and at that time the lack of medication that could treat that yeah. forced the hand of forced the hand of the medical community to explore surgical techniques that while still not being able to solve the rejection issue kind of yeah. pushed the surgical aspect of the transplantation and, and surrounding um, techniques forward. Absolutely. And then by the time then the, that the rejection t techniques came around, it was almost, it was like the, the, the surgical aspect had, had, had come along several yeah. iterations. Mm -hmm. So, so that the, the, the surgery was fine, but the drugs were not. And so the, the idea was, Oh, if someone's got a damaged heart, we just pop a new one in. And of course, there's not enough hearts to go around anyway. So they then had to find all new ways of fixing broken hearts. Mm, that sounds mm -hmm. very romantic, doesn't it? <laughs> but that's exactly what, what happened to me. Um, and so n back in the day, you had a, something like a 90% mortality rate. And nowadays, it's closer to 10%. Mm. Uh, just to give you, because what I have is genetic. My father lost two siblings in childhood. I was in hospital with this specific condition for, for two months. And my nephew, who has exactly the same, was in hospital for two weeks. So mm -hmm. I'm fairly confident that by the time my nephew has children, uh, if they are unlucky enough to get the uh, to get a knackered heart off the back of it, they could be maybe seen as as outpatients. Two days. It yeah, is yeah, absolutely right. days. it is absolutely fascinating. We're 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 like we're making this. Um, we're we're in the production phase of a show for for an organization um, that has to do with cystic fibrosis. And Jeremy lives with cystic fibrosis, and he is the beneficiary now of like a crazy mm. drug that is mm. essentially if somebody is born with CF today, as long as they have the right mutation, which is the most common one, they will benefit from a drug that could potentially make it so that they never that, really know what it's like to have CF. Yeah. That their CF yeah. is kind of like, yeah. you know, having, uh, <laughs> like not, not, not like better than having diabetes most likely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know? like, mm -hmm. a, like, like potentially, I mean, it's too early to say, but like potentially <clears throat> managed, just yeah. managed a, a disease that has never been truly manageable. Mm. Um, because like through the, the type mm. of medication that it is, it's yeah. kind of right, getting right down to the source. And, and we talked to a lot of people for this production and, and one of the questions that we asked was, has any other disease come, come as far as cystic fibrosis right. in, in, in like the time span that it has? And he said, no, it's the, it's, it is the disease that has come the furthest in the fastest amount of time that no other disease mm. has made the progress as that. And as a result, the medications that are, that are kind of being pioneered in cystic fibrosis are going to trickle into a t like the method through which they created these, these medications are going to trickle into things like heart disease so that yeah. somebody who's born with a heart condition, if they can pinpoint it and they know it's there, then it might never actually result. Mm. They see the genetic mutation, but the, then it never, it never rears its head. Yeah. Because forgive me, because I don't know much about it, but is it, it's sort of, is it an autoimmune 
No, it's uh, so yeah. So C- CF is a genetic uh, lung disease, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's all based on a genetic mutation. Um, these drugs are mm. they're they're gene modulators. So so they're they're going to they're going down to the genetic level, and they're they're although the genetic mutation is still there, this drug is able to fix the problem that the genetic mutation is causing. Right. So if that genetic mutation is causing a, a malformed protein in the body, and that protein, mm-hmm. if, it's, if it's shaped incorrectly, is going to fuck up the entire system of the body, well, that drug goes in it, and it uns- unscrews that protein to, to, to be the shape that it should have been. Right. And so it's, it's not treating the symptoms, it's treating at the source. Although, again, because it's not changing my genetics, my, this genetic mutation, it's not a cure, right? Mm. Um, it, is, it is very fascinating. It will be interesting to see like, how this, this type of medication, you know, these gene modulators will kind of fan out and affect other illnesses. Um, but to get, back, to get back to your story, Ian, I'm, I'm curious, what, what was, take us through your experience with, with heart disease. What was it that you were diagnosed with? Um, and, and when, when did you go through this process when you were, when you were younger? Ah, so this would have been going back to 1984 when I was had my big surgery, but I'd always, I, I, I was born, um, with, with this condition and it's, um, it's got a long name. <laughs> it's got a ridiculously long name. So, but all you need to know about it is that um, I'm, I'm slightly the wrong shape inside. I mean, obviously, this being a podcast, the poor listener cannot see, but this is a you know this is manly beauty sitting right here. <laughs> I mean, devastating Simply good looks, chiseled perfection. Thank you. Six that's why I've been. Requested. That's why I've been babbling this whole time. Is I, 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 I his I, brain has I, been scrambled. I I, 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 I get weird around really beautiful people. I have this effect. I've I've never slept without a chair propped under the door handle in my life. <laughs> I, so I I came out beautiful, but on the inside, not so much. So my heart is slightly the wrong shape. You've got a big bit which pumps blood around your body, and a small bit which pumps blood around your lungs. I've sort of got two big bits, uh, and my lungs are not quite the right shape. So you've got your left lung has got a little space in it for your heart to sit in, and your right lung doesn't except mine does and my stomach's on the wrong side and my liver's on the wrong side and i have i have apparently more spleens than i know what to do with i've got many many spleens so if anybody out there would like a spleen please put a stamped address envelope in the post (laughs) wait yeah for for real you've got you've got more than one you've got multiple spleens i've got multiple spleens here's the catch they don't work now, I like I I <laughs> yeah. It's not, it's not a more is better type. This is this is kind of, this is kind of mind blowing to me because um uh I didn't I didn't I don't think I knew that was a possibility. I didn't We've been doing that, this for yeah. eight years, and I don't think I ever heard of this. There's I, always that, something new. That's per, always there's always something fucking new. I know. Um, I know you said it's a really long name, and and I don't uh I don't blame you if you don't if you if you can't pronounce it. But do you know what do you know what it was that you were technically diagnosed with? So it's a left it's a left atrial lysomerism. A left and, uh, atrial, atrial isomerism. Isomerism. Okay. Okay. And, and heterotaxy syndrome. So this makes me sound really ill. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fine. Right, totally. Right. <laughs> I'm fine. So, uh, but then I did get really ill. I did get ill because what happens is, uh, but, so there's a hole between the two ventricles. You've got one ventricle pumps blood, uh, pumps deoxygenated blood around your lungs. 
fills up with oxygen, comes back full of oxygen, and the other ventricle pumps it out through the rest of your body. And what happens when you've got a gap between the two, you get deoxygenated blood mixed in with oxygenated blood, so you're not getting enough oxygen, which is why I'm shorter than my brother. But, uh, you know, there you go. If you like tall, go for him. Uh, <laughs> if, you, so, if, you like, if you like too many organs and weird positions of organs <clears throat> in my body, go for me. That's right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like to think I could withstand, I could withstand a bullet in the, the, a very specific place. <laughs> I mean, you actually could. That's like, that's a wild thought, right? Like, y- you know, I get shot and you get shot in the exact same place. You live, I die. Yeah, I mean that really could and, be the case. That's and the, the stunned gunman looks at us, and I say, "My liver's here, bitch!" And then <laughs> turn, <laughs> turn his own gun back on him. That's a wonderful oh, line. Wow. That's a wonderful to, to stop a bad man with a gun, you need a deformed man with another gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that's so wild. So, 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 uh, um. I want to try to say this heterotaxy syndrome, heterotaxy syndrome, heterotaxy. And is that the genetic, is that the genetic, um, is that the, the, the illness that your, your father has and your, and your nephew has, is that the thing that's been passed down genetically? It's a little bit difficult because it is a, um, what it is, is in, when you're being a fetus, as so many of us were, when you're being a fetus, you're, you're, you're as an embryo, you fold in different ways. Yeah. And what happens is rather than folding in one direction, I decided to fold in the other direction as an embryo so much in life. And, and that just means that everything's slightly not where it should be. And of course, if everything is in the wrong place, but works fine, you don't know you've got it because why would you poke around and find out? Right. Sure. Uh, so, so it's a little bit, I mean, it's an interesting position because either technology didn't exist to find out you've got this or you were dead before people could realize there was anything going on. And so I'm one of the first generation of people that people are going, oh, actually, these people can survive into adulthood. Let's have a look and see what's going on. Uh, So that's so that's all off to one side. When I got ill, I had it wasn't that that caused the problem as much as I got um, an infection on one of my valves in my heart. And I got endo, uh, endocarditis, which makes the heart muscles swell up, so it you know it doesn't work properly. And the only way to treat that is with antibiotics and surgery to close up the hole in the heart because it's a, it, it is a very risky procedure. It certainly was back in 1984. And they said rather than go through all the risk, let's see if he can just live with it mm. and be a short ass. And uh, <laughs> it turns out I couldn't live with it, so. We had to do the risky surgery instead. And how old were you when when all of this was going on? So I would have been seven years old. Okay, so you were you were around for a bit. You know, you you were forming thoughts. You were having conversations. You had a social yeah. life. Um, and and that's when they is that when you were seven? Is that when they realized that you had heterotaxy syndrome? Or no, was, no, we we knew before because got it. Uh, I'd 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 been in and out of hospital to to see various other bits and bobs and and it, it, it you know it was like being vigilant on it and saying oh this this you know this kid has not come out quite right mm-hmm. let's just keep an eye on him in case he gets in case he gets poorly um so when i was six i started getting ill and the local gp did not realize there was anything particularly wrong and said oh it's probably got a cold it's probably got 
a pulled muscle, this, that, and the other. But my mum, bless her, she knew I had an appointment in September for a checkup. And she was like, mm, no, I don't feel comfortable about this. Let's move it earlier. So she took me in in January rather than September. And uh, she, we were just about to leave the hospital, uh, the National Heart Hospital, as it was in, up in London. We were just about to leave when the, a voice came over the tannoy that said, could Ian Hawkins please stay? And I did stay for another two and a half months. Oh, wow. We oh. just never went home. So wow. that, and then you, so you had the surgery then? Yeah. Wow. It took, but it took me two, it took me two months to get well enough to have the surgery and then two weeks to recover from the surgery. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you got your podcasts holy have you, shit have you ever have you ever talked with your parents about what that was like for them like i'm i'm a new i'm a relatively new parent and like relatively yeah dude you're the child is 47 you're, you're a new yeah yeah you're just, you're, you're, you're just a new parent yeah i guess I feel like relatively new parent would be like your kid's like two three my kid is almost two sort of Oh, wow. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. I, I don't know. I look at Zay and I, she still looks like five days old to me. I mean, yeah, she's good because she has no hair. She's a little baby. Um, <laughs> and and like and and those types of things, I, since since having a kid, I, I really hmm. especially whenever we talk to somebody who's had a hmm. who's had a, an issue as a child, like that's something that really pops into my head is like, man, do, have you do you have your parents ever told you like what that was like? Or maybe they hide. I know that as a kid, they probably don't talk to you about how hard that is mm. because it's just not something that they would want to share. But as an adult, like, have you ever had the opportunity to, to pick their brain about that? I, I it's, it's a weird one, isn't it? I like, I don't know because I feel that, um, I don't feel that I was, I had much to do with it, which I know sounds odd, but this is the thing about being when you are, when you're just that age, and everybody else is around you is, is bigger and cleverer and has more power. You're kind of powerless, and I I totally get what you what you mean. And whenever I meet parents and they've got a sick child, uh, I I always tell them this story, and I say, Oh God, I feel really sorry for my parents. But I have to say, I I really I, I feel like that's theirs, mm. and this is mine, and it's it's kind of up to them to deal with. My dad kept a diary. And my mum said to me, do you want to read it? And I went, absolutely not. And she went, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Mm. Uh, that w that w I mean, I can, I, 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 I get it. I mean, that makes sense. That makes sense to me that it's hmm. like, um, like from the outside, from like the impersonal standpoint, I'm like, I'm like, oh, I'm fascinated. Like, I'd love to, ask, I'd love mm. to ask your parents. Like, I'd love to know yeah, how yeah. they felt, but I get mm. why, I get why that's not something that you might be interested in. So what well, completely complete case in point when i had covid i went to hospital with covid and my partner came in and said you're going to tell your mum and i said she's not a doctor so what what's she going to do worry 
so let's just see what happens. And I said, if I'm still here in a week's time, then I'll let her know. But if I'm just going to be here for a couple of days, yeah, you know, More I'll let her know on my way home. Yeah, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so this is so, it's not a very healthy family dynamic, is it? Anyway, well, I mean, I, I, don't, know, you know, I, I mean, don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I wouldn't say it's not a healthy dynamic. I. I think. Again, it's like it's so it's so you. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe like I can't mm. speak for you and your family dynamic. Maybe it is very unhealthy. I don't know, but but I don't think that that's I don't think that that's necessarily a um a like off the wall unhealthy thing. I, no. I think I you know it's it's it totally depends we, on the on on who your parents are and like what you what you and what your what experiences you, have been yeah. as a as you know as you as you became an adult and your you know the i mean it, like it's so unique to everyone's experience mm. that and the ways that we either handle illness or deal with illness or you know for, as a as a as a stand up comedian i'm kind of curious like how how do you think this experience as a kid this heart surgery this like you know mm-hmm. open heart surgery is a fucking serious thing like that's a that's when i think of surgeries it's like open heart surgery and brain surgery are the two that i go ooh, heavy hitters those are big those are big boys yeah Hmm. you going through those processes as as a as a seven year as seven year old boy how do you think that shaped you going forward do you think that you know as someone who became a stand-up comedian do you think that humor was one of your like main coping mechanisms when it comes to things that you face that are challenging yeah, you always like to think that it's your personality. And then as you get a bit older, you look back and go, that's not a personality. That's a set of symptoms, isn't it? <laughs> that's not quite the same thing. I definitely did use humor as a sort of as a sort of buffer because humor is a great way of, of diffusing tension and uh and also a great way of making friends. And if you lose out on a on a chunk of your education and a chunk of your socialization, which I did you kind of want to get as many shortcuts to making friends as you possibly can. So being smart and funny is, is definitely one way in there. For me, I think the, the, the biggest thing about the surgery for me was that it, it, because it wasn't a story that I was part of. It was stuff that happened to me and I didn't really have any autonomy and I didn't have any decisions. Nowadays, I think that's really changed. So when my nephew had his surgery uh i went to see him once and he was having he was talking to a counselor there and then and it was that was good to see because it was was, right we're going to put the patient at the center of it Mm. when i was having it all done it was very much you're a collection of meat and organs and this one doesn't work and we're going to fix it yeah you're just a doll being handed off to other people and yeah right right yeah it, it was like the so for ages, I had a bad back, and I didn't know why. Uh, and they said, uh, I'm, I'm, I had an osteopathy. Well, you've had surgery here. So they've cut through all the muscles and things here, which means you haven't exercised your back properly. And you are always in a mm. tense situation. You're always pushing your shoulders forward. And I went, of course, that absolutely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, to, to, to the surgical team, they've gone, the heart is fixed. It's back in the body. It's warm and pink. The heart is beating. Job done. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, why wouldn't you know? They're not, they're not osteopaths, and they're not psychiatrists. So they've they've just done, done what what they know how to do. Mm. Um, so I would say that the, 
the thing that it that has affected me most is about trying to get a grip on my own story. Yeah. And to to try and be autonomous and to have my own say and to be able to make my own decisions again. When did you because can you recall like when you started to have that thought? You know, like how old are you now? 46. No, yeah. I know I don't look it. And <laughs> and wow. And, thanks. And frankly, haven't for some years. But, you know, this is what it is. So so um so this happened, you know, quite a long time ago. Um Yeah. You were 7. At what point at what point in your life I mean, do you recall? Do you recall at what point in your life you you started to look at this this experience that you had as a as a youngster and yeah. and start to try to like take back that control, take back that autonomy? I I think I'd always made sort of quite reckless decisions about my career. I wasn't I didn't know what I was going to do for a long time. I was hopping from one thing to another. And I don't think it's till I was in my mid 30s mm-hmm. that I went actually, no, I need to get serious about various things. So one of the ones was that I was drinking too much. Uh, And the thing about drinking, when you drink too much, you reduce your, uh, you reduce everything down, like any addiction to where's my next drink coming from. And it makes life really easy. It makes decisions really easy. Mm. Am I going to get a drink out of this? Yes or no? And that when I when I I had this moment where it's just like you know I I'm a drunk and I don't want to be an alcoholic anymore mm. and I don't want to be getting up in the morning and reaching for a gin and tonic and that I think was the moment where it all changed where mm. I went wait a minute if I can change this I can change that if I have autonomy here and I make a decision there I'm I'm in charge of my own story again. Because every story that you ever sit down and watch or read or hear is about somebody making a decision. Mm -hmm. And when a decision is taken away from you, you're not the hero in your own story anymore. You're a bit part player. Yeah. Right. You know, if if I talk about my, I find, I find my surgery as a child very hard to talk about because the hero is uh, my surgeon or my mum or whoever. It's nothing to do with me. I've just laid there and got better. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Whereas when I went to hospital with COVID, I made a few very specific decisions. Number one, uh, don't tell my parents I'm here until I know I'm all right, or un- unless I know I'm really not all right, and then they have to be here. Number two, if I can't work after this, because I was in quite a bad way, if I can't work after this, what am I going to do? I'm going to start my own business because I'm otherwise in- unemployable. So first night I was in hospital, I started a business. I got my iPad, built a website, said, right, that's it. That's what I'm going to do. If I can't work 40 hours a week like I used to, if I could work eight hours a week, this is what I have to do. And it was and, and it was making those big decisions meant that I took control of my story once again. Hmm. I I really uh I really I really love that. I you know the 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 viewpoint of 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 looking at your life, you know, it, we we it's it's sort of been like memeified but like people living with like main character syndrome, you know, like 
looking at your life as like, I am the main character of my story. And, and, and it's, that has become almost like a, Oh, you're just a fucking narcissist. Um, but there, there is, there is a really valuable way of looking at life like, Mm. like that. And, and, and you just, you just sort of gave that example right there, which is perfect. It's, it's, looking at your life as though you are the main character of that story so that you are the one to make the choices that will benefit you again, mm. to have the autonomy of your life. I mean, I, I, I really, I really love that. That um, was kind of the, uh, the premise of, uh, the premise of the first episode the of, uh, of black mirror. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Totally. When she's yes. like, she's she like, goes and takes like, shit sh- in the church. I mean, yes, but far before, <laughs> but, but far before that scene, far before that scene, yeah. she's sitting with her psychiatrist and she says, That's right. she says like, I feel like I'm not the main, yes. I feel like I'm not the main character yeah. in my own story. Yeah. And I feel like I'm not, I feel like I'm not driving the car. Yeah. I, I, um, I'm curious about your experience with, with COVID. I mean, I, I know a lot of people that had COVID, um, hmm. But I, I don't think I've, I've spoken to anyone who's been, who actually was hospitalized with it. Um, at least not in my, like in my own personal orbit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think um, so. and you were just mentioning that you were, you were in a, like a bad, a bad way. Yeah. It what, was, it was March 2020. Like? Oh fuck. It, it like mar- you, you got it right, right off the bat. Right at the beginning. The fresh and I was, COVID. And I, I was looking at the stories coming in and going, ah, oh, a pulmonary disease that is crossing the globe. Here am I. Here I am with my medical history. I should probably be a bit cautious. I should right. probably. Uh, and I, I was working as an editor at the time, and <laughs> I remember sending an email to HR saying, "Are we going to, we going to do something?" I said, "Oh yeah, we'll probably put some hand sanitizer in the foyer, <laughs> or something." And that was on Thursday, Friday, and I went in on the Monday, and I was just a bit poorly, and mm. I wasn't feeling quite right. And as the morning wore on. I felt worse and worse. And I said, I'm going to go home and I'm going to call my GP. And I thought, actually, this doesn't feel right at all. I've got sense of the doom, which mm. is apparently a symptom. If you have a sense of doom, it's bad. Mm. So, I, I mean, well, actually, the hospital is a bit closer than my flat. So I went into hospital and they with my medical history they obviously went right let's test for heart attacks let's test for this and i i immediately thought valve has gone wrong again or Ooh. it's early onset um heart failure or something like that covid didn't actually cross my mind right my blood oxygen was really low they did a um a, a blood test to see if i'd had a heart attack and they said well if the protein is above here you've had a heart attack and here is normal and your level's sort of in the middle I went, well, they went, it's not bad. I went, yeah, but it's not good either, is it? Right. Come on. And my blood oxygen was very low. And they they just kept me in for a for a um for a while to, to just sort of look at me. And it wasn't until six months later, a friend of mine's a doctor who happened to run a COVID clinic. And I told him all my symptoms. And he went, Oh mate, you had COVID. Of course you did. Mm. I went, ah. And I I'd I'd gone from being someone that used to run half marathons to really struggling to get out of bed and walk up the end of the corridor to make a cup of tea. Yeah. Right. Right. So did you end up in the hospital at that time when you went, like you ended up having to stay in the hospital Mm -hmm. and this is where, you know, you said you started your, this website and you kind of made this decision to start this business. So, so they, so at the time they didn't even diagnose Mm. you with COVID. They didn't, they didn't diagnose me because in March, 2020, right. You couldn't like, yeah, there were no tests. tests. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and I wasn't coughing. It was just literally the the low blood oxygen and you know wheezing away and and not feeling very well. Yeah. So so there was they they just didn't know. Yeah, I mean, and yeah, in which we know now that like COVID, although primarily respiratory, um, hmm. has affected people in fucking ways that are just mind-bogglingly weird. weird. You know, from a psychological standpoint, it's probably best case to not know at the time that you had that 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 it was covid because at the time with i got it's 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 easy now in hindsight to kind of like you know you know synthesize all the information that we know about covid now but at the time like you know i i was in uh i was in uh, i was in indonesia when i first heard about it in january or february when it was like Mm. in china and then i was actually on the galapagos islands when it when it when it like when it shut the world down and and it was like you knew nothing like it was it was either going to be nothing or it was going to kill everybody like it was like you had no idea and so if you had it in march psychologically for sure the worst time would have been scarier to get it just going like i have no idea i was wiping down chip bags with lysol oh my god you know like the groceries are coming i'd be like well, better give these groceries a bath of uh, throw them in the in the bath with bleach. But having the, had that experience, Ian, how did that affect? Because COVID is a very different experience for for everybody. Like every like it, yeah. it was viewed through a very different lens, and it was like extremely polarized and politicized very, and politicized extremely in North America, but yeah. I know also in 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 the UK and in Europe um, and many places in the world. Like, what was your experience? How did, how did that color the next? two years of your life well for me it was just a sort of strange for the first six months it was like a strange cardiac event i'd just gone wait a minute my heart isn't working as it's supposed to and i and i did it was it was quite a long time to get back to quote unquote normal yeah um so i just assumed that me old trouble had come back because remember i i'm the first generation of people to have lived with this heart condition long term mm-hmm. so there comes a point where you go well all bets are sort of off i don't know what somebody with my medical history looks like when they when they get into middle age right you know what what does that what does that look like nobody knows because we we don't exist um so i i had worked on the assumption that it was that and i'd worked on the assumption that i may or may not have my you know my 40 hours of productive work in a week and therefore what was i going to do and and I, I i lost my job um because i was convalescing uh and as it happened somebody just phoned up kind of out of the blue and i was getting this business off the ground and somebody phoned up off, out of the blue and said you're quite good at hosting um events uh you're you're quite good at, at talking around a table and, and making sure everyone gets their voice said would you be able to host a webinar we're doing because it was going to be a live event now it's obviously happening online Ooh. would you be up for that and i couldn't really afford to say no because i have no other way of paying my bills so i went yes okay i'll do that and they had about a dozen of them for the next couple of months and i could sit there you know in a not in a great physical condition but i could certainly sit there and talk into a webcam Ooh. and say fantastic uh, Jeremy, what do you think, Taylor? Mm-hmm. And, and 
and moderate a discussion from my um, from, from from this chair from this desk from my mm-hmm. from my kitchen and so when the lockdown for me was actually pretty good because it meant my career could spin off into this slightly new place mm. and when events came back so too had my health so they said oh you know that event we did online last year now we're doing it in amsterdam do you want to get on the eurostar and go to amsterdam and host this event yes i would mm. <laughs> definitely mm. Mm-hmm. Having been cooped up for a couple of years, yeah, it, it is. So, that, sorry, go ahead. Well, so 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 it's a really good example of how circumstances are, are, are whatever they are. You can't change them, but your attitude you always can change. Mm. And I could have just laid there and gone, "Well, that's it. I'm I'm toast." Uh, but that wouldn't have paid the bills. Mm-hmm. It is a. It is a like looking back on looking back on the last few years and like the, the ways in which that whole scenario made some things horrific and made some, and, and like laid the groundwork for, and and like sowed the seeds for, Mm. for something else to grow. I mean, we certainly had that experience in a lot, in a lot of different ways. Um, and, and, and being able to, there, there, there's like, I think in in a lot of ways it sort of like happens kind of natural, sort of naturally, or at least like the opportunity comes, but then also being able to like, being able to sense that a door is opening, you know, so mm. it's not, it's not, I don't, I don't think it's always, I don't think it's always, I don't think it's always, you know, a flashing light over a door that's open, you know, that, that there's like an opportunity here for you to do something and, yeah. and being able to, being able to recognize that the door is just open ajar just enough to see the light coming through the other side and to walk through it is a, is, is not a, not necessarily an easy, an, an easy thing to do in well, a time, in a time such as you dealing with, dealing with an illness and also the whole, and also the, the situation, the circumstance of the world. I, I think that because of my early experience, the second time it happened to me, I felt like, no, I am going to grab this and I'm going to make a decision and I'm going to be in charge of it. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to let an illness be in charge of me. I think that there's been all kinds of things that have been thrown up by COVID. I certainly don't think we've heard the last of it. I know we all want to put it in a box and say, that's over, we're moving Mm. on to other things. But I think the long tail of the experience is certainly going to be with us for a very long time. Yeah. For instance, I do, I, I talk to a lot of people about, employment and and young people in the workplace and they're saying god these kids are really entitled when they come in and i say well wait a moment they've just lost three years of their life and it's not like you and me lose three years of our life because if if i said to you um taylor the next three years of your life you have to spend indoors you go great well i've got a two-year-old i've got all kinds of things i can do with that (laughs) if you're 18 and you lose three years of your life that is three years of absolute prime going out socializing making friends making your network starting your career you know, my parents, another generation, they're in their 70s. They had a motorhome and, you know, they're fine. They're very healthy, but they know they've only got a finite number of summers left where they can enjoy their motorhome mm-hmm. before they have to stop driving. Mm-hmm. So three years away from them, that's really unkind. For those of us in the middle, you know, COVID was horrible and we're over it now. but. For the younger generation and for the oldest, I think it's going to be, you know, it's, oh my God. Th- yeah. It's going to be a long tail. My, my uncle, I was uh, with my uncle the other day. He was a, uh, a sixth, sixth grade teacher and 
he he was like, well, the the kids that I have now are the kids that when they started going to uh, when they started um um uh or, or sorry, uh, he was like when when the kids that I'm getting now when they were just starting to like go to school school like the first couple of years being basically like hey everybody we're just in a room together let's learn how to be in hmm. a room together and then you're actually now it's like okay grade one grade two and he's like those kids that i'm getting now are the kids that like basically got to school and we're like hey i'm at school now and then we're like now let's go back home mm-hmm. and so like all of these like fundamental <clears throat> skills are just not hmm. there they're all they're all weirdos like those homeschooled kids, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, all those yeah. homeschooled kids, <laughs> fucking weird. All, all those of us that spent a lot of their childhood in hospital. My yeah. people, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Amen, My brother. People. Amen, brother. <laughs> it is. It is. It is something that is going to. It is something that the that the ripple effects of are yeah. going to are going to to be be reverberating around for a long yeah. time. And that's all. I mean, this is only one tiny tiny sliver of what those ripple effects mm-hmm. will look like i mean that's you know we're, we haven't even we haven't even touched on things like long covid or or um you know just post viral illnesses that like we just we don't even understand how the fucking virus works in the first place so it is mm-hmm. it, it is going to be um as much as we like to think that it's over it's yeah it's, it's not over it's just it's just the it's just an, a, another chapter to a very long long book and it's it's certainly brought out a lot of people from the woodwork who are you know oh covid was invented to you know to take people out and yeah. all kinds of conspiracy theories which well, we, uh, we know I, that to be true i mean that, that that's neither here nor there um but anyway continue <laughs> but no but it, we hear about all these like extraordinary and bizarre mm-hmm. theories about it and, yeah. and, you know, people refusing to wear masks, you know, which is the simplest and the least damaging thing you can do to protect yourself yeah. and, and whether or not you're going to wear a mask. And you want to say, on the one hand, yes, we all have freedom. On the other hand, we all live in a society and your cough is my really bad news. So please don't do it all over my face. Mm-hmm. Um, and and, and we've, we've learned about how how difficult it is to ask somebody to do something for somebody else. One of the things that I always find when I talk to Americans, and I don't want to be rude about America, but because of the health service that we have in the UK, I have had open heart surgery. I have had uh, days in hospital with COVID. I've had my tonsils out. I've had the best care you can get. If I have a problem, I send an email to my consultant and she says, ooh, that sounds dodgy. Could you make an appointment and come in on Tuesday? We'll see you for an ECG. Mm -hmm. That doesn't cost me a penny. Mm My time in hospital cost me whatever a new toothbrush costs. And in the United States, if you, you the thing I notice the most about the United States, not Canada because you have a different system, but in the United States, the thing I mo- most often notice when I go to New York is people walking around with injuries that have not quite healed properly because yeah, they've right. run out of money. Right. And that idea that healthcare is if you can afford it. And Culturally, the British don't have that. Culturally, the British go, I'm sick, You're, the state will, will treat me. And we're, the NHS has come under a huge amount of pressure and we're coming perilously close to losing it. And if we do, it ain't coming back. 
Dude. I saw an article in the New York Times about that just the other day. It was like it was the headline was something to the effect of like, "Can the NHS be saved?" Ooh. And there's money. And, it's and, it's political will, isn't it? Mm-hmm. As, and, as, and, as so many of these things come down to. And, and as somebody who, and as as somebody sitting in Canada, I haven't I haven't I haven't followed really the trajectory of the NHS. I've always sort of seen it as 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 sort of the um, the upgraded, better version of what we've got here in Canada. And um, and I didn't know that I didn't know that it was uh, that it was in that it was in crisis. And um, yeah, I didn't I I didn't know I didn't know what the what the situation. Um, was there and I saw that in the New mm. York Times and I thought, oh shit! Like that's that's a that's a big deal because yeah. I think the NHS have, is a is a, is a, is kind of like a north star for a lot of uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of countries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have we have our doctors are out on strike at the moment, and to to have somebody that is uh, that has dedicated their life to being a doctor deciding they're not going to go to work today is is extraordinary. That's huge, mm. and you know that and the government's playing a who's going to blink first game and. There are elements in the media saying how these these doctors are disgusting for leaving patients on the on the gurney. You know, want to say, mm. well, they do actually deserve a, a, a fair day's pay for a very fair day's work. We ask a lot of our doctors. Mm. We should be paying them a decent amount of money, and no, they've I mean, taken a real terms pay cut over the last over the last ten years. Yeah. The, uh, Ian, this has been this has been a really fun conversation um and i i i want to uh be respectful of your time but um before we wrap there is a question that we typically ask most of our most of our guests and um and uh i'd like to ask you the question it's a two-part question um and i'm curious about what the answer is going to be because it, it you know again coming back to something you said earlier which is which is like your experience with your your heart defect and your um, heterotaxy syndrome as a child, you know, the, the way you sort of put it was like, that wasn't your story. Hmm. You weren't the main character there. That was somebody else was the hero of that. Um, so I, I, I pose this question with that in mind, but um, what would you say is the biggest thing that, heterotaxy syndrome or your your heart defect has taken away from you uh what has it taken away i that's a very good question i i think it's taken away a i think it's taken away a big chunk of my certainty about my own ability to make decisions and I think it took a long time to get that back. And I would I would say that you can see that through the decisions I made about my education, the decisions I made about my career, um, the decisions I made about my health, particularly around drinking. I think it took away my ability to make a decision, stick to it, and have confidence in it. What would you say is the biggest thing that it's given you? Uh, it's given me so much more than it's taken away absolutely it's given me the ability to look people in the eye and tell them to fuck off uh, which is always nice <laughs> i don't do it very often but when i absolutely have to you can that will happen it's given me a 
sometimes it's given me a, a a sort of bird's eye view of things about what's really important. I've sometimes noticed people who set themselves up and they have all kinds of things that they the word should i've never liked the word should you should do this you should do that if what would your life be like if you got rid of all the shoulds it might be completely different we all struggle with that a little bit i like to think i'm better at avoiding the shoulds than most and it's something i i I often spot with other people you're doing too much should i should do this Uh, and i think the the big thing that it's given me when I left hospital, I was, I'd been bored out of my little mind. And I said, I will no longer be bored. And I've absolutely lived by that rule. I don't get bored. I travel the world. I've been all over the place. Uh, Nicaragua, Panama. I once was in a helicopter calling the shots on a film over an active volcano. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I did think to myself at the time, you're stupid. No, no, no. I'm just, I just don't like being bored. So it's given me, it's given me a lot more than it's taken away. Beautiful. Ian, uh, I want to thank you for, for taking time out of your schedule to sit down and chat with us. This has been a really fun, engaging conversation. Um, and how can people, how can people follow you? How can people stay up to date with the work that you're doing? Or, you know, perhaps someone's listening to this and they go, God damn, that guy, would love to have him uh, host my next event. How can they find you? And he sounds handsome. You, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I'm. Do you know what? I, I, I have to wear a lot of makeup to take down the handsomeness. Right. Uh, but if you, <laughs> if you want to, uh, if you want to find me, I'm on link. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm all over the place on LinkedIn. I'm on uh, Threads, Twitter, and Insta at, at Smart Mr Hawkins, and my website is Mr Hawkins.com. But if you want to if you want to talk business, the best place to find me is LinkedIn. Amazing. Sweet. Thank you, Ian. This has been a real treat. Thank you very much, Sherry. Thank you very much, Taylor. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Well, there you go, folks. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, we are coming at you Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And if you are a fan of the podcast and you want to support the podcast, there's a number of ways you can do that. First of all, you can leave a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. We love reading them. You can simply rate the podcast on the Spotify mobile app, if that's where you're listening. Or if you want to join the conversation, hop on over to our Discord. The link is in the show notes of this episode. And uh, we have a lovely little community over there of sickos and non-sickos all hanging out, chatting, And uh, hey, you could even help produce the podcast over there if you want. You can, again, find that link in the show notes below. Sick Boy Podcast is produced and co-hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Taylor McGilvery, and Brian Stever. The show is managed by Jeffrey Lonis over at Talent Bureau. The sound design of this episode is brought to you by Donovan the CPAP Morgan. And of course, the theme music is from the band Take Part. That is it for this week. I'm Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.